This morning, we're back in uh, the world of Paul. And so we got to climb back in to the mindset we had last week because we're at a point where to dig into these lessons as much as I want to dig in, we can't really do it all in one class to get through a, a, a regular flow. So today's got a little bit of review because we've got some folks that uh, were not here last week uh, that are here this week. Uh, and then we've also got some folks that... that may have taken a vacation in their brain since last week, and those gray cells that remembered things are not here uh, uh, from last week. So with that, uh, we'll do a little bit of uh, recapturing of, of the attitude. But i got to start out with a story. When I was 12 years old, my family uh, would frequently uh, go to San Angelo, which is where my grandparents lived on my mom's side. And my grandfather had a job working for Humble Oil. It's now Exxon. And what Granddaddy Tommy did is he drove every day, well, five days a week, his pickup truck through all of these leases, which is uh, basically ranches out in that part of the country. And he'd go to the various oil. Um, uh, after an oil well's been dug, it, it pumps into uh, big tanks. And he'd go to the tanks and he'd, measure out how much oil's in them so they'd know when they need to drain the tanks. He was a gauger. And he'd look at all the equipment and make sure it was working. And this is what he did in his pickup truck, driving down these little caliche roads in West Texas on the various ranches. And when I was 12, Granddaddy Tommy decided it was time for me to learn how to drive. And he was just the man to teach me. So I would go to work with him in his pickup truck. And he'd get me behind the wheel. You know, we're at this ranch where the worst thing you do is you run off the road and hit a cactus or something. I mean, it's, it's not like big danger time, right? So he'd find the right ranches in the right places, and he'd put me behind the wheel, and I'd start driving. Now, I did pretty good with the gas and the brake. I had those down. And, uh, you know, I didn't veer off the road. My problem is I hit every pothole that there was in those rolls, roads. And, and the first time I hit one, he just kind of grumbled. And the second time I hit one, he said, uh, try not to hit those potholes. Third time I hit one, it was, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Don't hit those potholes. And, I mean, it was 10, 15 seconds later I hit my next one. He said, stop the truck, stop the truck, get out. Look at the wheel. You see where the wheel is? That's what's hitting the potholes that's jiggling the whole truck and is messing up the suspension. Okay? Look at where that wheel is. Get back in here and drive and don't hit those potholes. Yes, sir. I got back in, cranked it down into gear, and I started driving <laughs> About 15 seconds later, I hit a doozy. He's jumping up in the time. I mean, it, it bounced him pretty good. And he said, why are you hitting those potholes? Didn't you see that pothole? I said, no, sir. He said, well, then you're too blind to drive. Get out. So I got out and went back around, and he drove the rest of the day. We got home that, that day to my grandparents' house. He pulled my mom and dad aside and said, your boy's blind. So we went home, and they took me to the eye doctor. <laughs> he walked out after the test. Mom said, how is he? 
And I'm sitting there, you know, they talk like you're not there. <laughs> How is he? And he said, that boy can't read the big E. He can't see the side of a barn. At which point I chimed in and said, tell my granddaddy. And I got these. Actually, it was a different pair, but same concept. Um, I, those potholes were there, but they weren't in my world. I did not see them. From where I sat with my equipment, I didn't see the potholes. I thought I was doing just good driving that truck. Where my grandfather sat with his equipment, those potholes could not have been any clearer. Which tells me that vision is a funny thing. Because we really do have certain things we see real well. Have you ever noticed that your spouse, if you're married, has blind spots and things they don't see very well? I've noticed that. Because my spouse has pointed out to me where I have those things. <laughs> With kindness, gentleness, and love in her voice. There are areas where I'm just blind. I don't have the vision I wish I had. Now, we live in a world where things are constantly going. As Pastor Trammell was preaching this morning, I was thinking about this lesson while I'm listening to his lesson. Thinking about the difference between, as he was preaching on God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And I live around a lot of people who are rats on little treadmills. And they're running real fast. Now, some of them have gold on their treadmills. And they feel like they're such special rats for running on a gold treadmill. Oh, I've got one or two in particular who probably have a few precious stones on the side of their treadmill. They're really special rats. They're running on a gold stone-encrusted treadmill. One of those wheels. Just running. I don't want to be that way. I want a higher purpose and I want a different calling than running on a treadmill. Even if it's gold. And the way the world is, we have a tendency to see the world as a series of events. It's politics. It's we have President Bush we have an election coming. We're going to choose probably between Senator Obama and Senator McCain. Uh, we've got a, a world in, in turmoil. We've got wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We've got things happening in Africa in some countries that, that are abhorrent. If you go to, to Google Darfur and look at what's been going on. And, and we've got poverty that, that not only stretches across the globe, but is in our backyard. We've got family events. We've got, have you filled up your car with gas? Prices go up. Jobs are tough. The whole housing market is, is in disarray. Families fall apart. This whole world seems to be going on on its own with lots of issues and lots of things. And yet, there is God who is over all of this 
And I don't want to see the world like the rat on the treadmill. I want to see the world from God's perspective. I want God's wisdom. I think of wisdom as the way God sees things. I want God's wisdom on events because God sees beyond what the world sees. God perceives things we don't. And so when we read the events of Paul and we study Paul's life like we're doing now, we can see events from a world perspective. If you are in the world, if you're the rat on the treadmill, you can see it one way as it's spinning round and round. But through Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we have insight from God that gives us God's view. And one of the things I want us to do as we look at the lesson today is contrast the way God sees the world and the way God's orchestrating and maneuvering through the tapestry of history and the way we tend to see it from just a human worldly perspective. Because what's true in the life of Paul is true in the life of each one of us with everything we've got going on in the world. Everything we've got going on in the world, it's true. God is at work. He's the chess master who's not just thought it out seven moves. He's thought it out to the end of the game and has declared checkmate. It's just a matter of moving through the pieces now. So with that, remember where we were. Paul had gone to the temple. He had gone to fulfill a vow of purity that the church elders and James had asked him to do. The, 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 the Jewish unbelievers that were challenging Paul tried to kill him there. They weren't successful because a Roman centurion intervened. Paul was taken to the Roman tribune who, who tried to, to get out of Paul what was going on. And as a result of the efforts of the few who were trying to kill Paul, Paul got to address the entire Jewish believers that were, were around to listen to him. In Aramaic. They wanted to shut Paul up. Paul got a voice. The voice of God. And then Paul got to go to the Sanhedrin because they were trying to figure out what to do with him. Paul got to testify to the Sanhedrin. And then Paul goes to the barracks. And in the Roman barracks, God comes to him at night and says, you're going to Rome to testify to these facts, just like you've been doing it here. And, and I want us to view what happens through this, because it takes over two years for Paul to go to Rome. But look what God does in those two years. And you can see it from two perspectives. You can see it like a duck or a rabbit. You can see it from two perspectives. Now... For the history, yeah, they're explaining, see? All right, it's the rabbit facing that way, it's the duck facing that way. Okay, so this is either the mouth, quack, quack, or the ears, eh, what's up, doc? Okay? Now, let's look at it from two perspectives. For much of our history, we've got the history in Acts, 
Luke was a phenomenal first-rate historian, inspired by the Holy Spirit, another phenomenal first-rate historian, in fact, a perfect one. And uh, uh, Luke has recorded an incredible history, but we're going a little past Luke. We're going to look also at the writings of Flavius Josephus. And I've pulled him in my little books because I got tired of ripping out the pages of the big one in here. But you can buy the works of Josephus in one volume. If you buy them in these little ones, it takes like 12 or 13 volumes and it's a couple hundred bucks. Don't do that. Just get a one volume. And I put a good site down there. Fascinating. In fact, read what he says about Jesus. Because he writes about Jesus too. Josephus is uh, um, our historian, and, and we use him enough in this lesson. I thought we should talk about him for just a moment. He was born 37 A.D. Within five or so years of the death of Christ is when he was born. He's born in Jerusalem, and he uh, receives a top-flight education there in Jerusalem. By the way, this places him younger than Paul. Probably uh, 20 years or so younger than Paul, at least. Maybe 30 or 40, depending on Paul's age. We don't know. So he wouldn't have been in school at the same time with Paul. But we know that Josephus gets a top-flight education. He spends three years sampling all the different Jewish uh, groups to see which one he wants. And he decides he's going to be a Pharisee, the most strict group, the same group Paul was. Um. He uh, uh, knows about these events we're talking about firsthand. In fact, Josephus winds up being a Jew who goes to Rome to fight against some of the rulings of Governor Felix that we talked about last week. So when he writes about Governor Felix and he writes about the rulings of Felix, the Felix that Paul appeared before, uh, uh, this is the same governor that Josephus went to Rome to the emperor to try and protest the actions of this governor. He not only did that, when the Jewish nation revolts about ten years after the events we're reading in Acts right now. When the Jewish nation revolts against Rome, Josephus is a commander of a unit in Galilee. As a commander of the unit in Galilee, ultimately his troops get surrounded. They're getting slaughtered by the Romans. And rather than die, the troop commits itself to a suicide pact. And they go through and, and, and draw straws for who's going to be responsible for killing everybody else. Or who's going to be the last one to, to die. Josephus and one other fellow are the last two. And before they can kill themselves, the Romans capture them. And the Romans are going to kill them. But instead, somehow, Josephus becomes the interpreter and the intermediary for the Romans as they continue to try and fight the Jews. His Greek was very good. His Latin was no doubt very good. And his Hebrew was top flight. Josephus, after after the the Romans have conquered the Jews and destroyed the temple, Masada, all of that's happened, Josephus goes back to Rome and actually becomes one of the top confidants of the Roman Caesars. And one Caesar in particular gives him a stipend, a, a payment, along with estates and other things, and says, this money is so you can write the history of the Jewish people. In the history of our war. 
Josephus wrote those. Those are what we've been talking from. So these are the historical writings that he did. It's interesting. We're going to talk today about King Agrippa and Paul before Agrippa. Agrippa is written about many, many times by Josephus. Josephus had interactions with Agrippa. Agrippa writes Josephus. Agrippa read Josephus's books. And we'll get into that here in a little bit, I hope, if we have time. Our story today is taking place in Caesarea still. And in Caesarea, where Paul has been, last week Paul was in front of Governor Felix. And we talked about Caesarea being a powder keg waiting to explode. The Jews and the Syrians, the non-Jewish, the Gentiles there, are in a huge turmoil over control of the city. Governor Felix intervenes and Governor Felix comes in and actually kills a bunch of the Jews. Governor Felix is very rough with the Jews. Felix, of course, being a freed man, not a Roman citizen, not of noble birth. This is the man Tacitus said Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. Felix was not well thought of. Felix was fighting to hang on to his job. Felix is trying to control a Jewish uh, uh, fight against the Gentiles. And the Gentiles fight against the Jews. And there are lots of problems in the area. There are acts of terrorism, we label it today. And, and Felix can't control it. And he's not doing a good job controlling it. And he's got Paul in his custody. He's decided Paul hadn't done anything wrong, but he's not letting Paul go. Periodically, over a two-year basis, Paul goes to Felix and his third wife, the young Jewish wife he has, Drusilla. And Paul is talking to him, but every time the conversation gets a little bit too close to home... Felix dismisses Paul because he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But he, he can't just leave him alone. He keeps calling him back in. Well, there comes a time where Felix loses his job. He's canned. He's fired. The emperor in Rome with his red hair says, You're fired. But it's worse than that. He's not just fired for malfeasance, but the Jewish people are sending emissaries to Rome to try and get Felix himself the ultimate fire. Because of the atrocities Felix has evidently put down on them. If we look at what Josephus says about it. Get these. Josephus says the following in, in his Jewish Antiquities. He says, um, When Portius Festus was sent by Nero as successor to Felix, Festus is the fellow who comes next. We'll read about him in a minute. The leaders of the Jewish community of Caesarea went up to Rome to accuse Felix. 
he would have undoubtedly pay, have paid the penalty for his misdeeds against the Jews had not Nero yielded to the urgent entreaty of Felix's brother Pallas, whom at that time Nero held in the highest honor. So we're at a point in history where Felix is losing his job. He's been canned, but Jews aren't satisfied with that. They want him to pay the price for his misdeeds. They want him executed. And they send emissaries to Rome to try to get Nero to do it. Now, this is the context of the Bible where Luke is writing to us. And Luke says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. See, from the world's perspective, Felix has been worried about his job. He loses his job, but he realizes the Jews are wanting more. They're, they're talking about putting together a, a posse to go to Rome. And so, he, hey, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I may have killed a bunch of your people, but we always did sort of get along. So desiring to do them a favor. Now, from the world's perspective, that rat on that treadmill that's getting bounced off of that treadmill thinks he's living under his perception of what's best for him. But God's hand is at work in this history. There's a history far beyond his little treadmill of how he's trying to save his life. So, with him gone, in comes the new man, Governor Festus. There's a new sheriff in town going to settle things down. And Festus is coming. At Matthew, Festus. Is, see, now that I know the demographics, there's a large percentage of our class that gets this. Those of you who don't, go to TV land and watch Gunsmoke. Festus comes in to settle things down. Now, Festus is no fool. He's coming in for a fellow who's just lost his job. Festus is the replacement for the man who can't keep the Jews and the Syrians at peace with each other. So Festus comes in and what does he do? Well, immediately he does the thing he should. Three days on the job, he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to figure out what's going on. He wants to make relationships. Because this world is about relationships. Which, by the way, is why you need to be in a connection group. We pause for a commercial break. Relationships. Okay. So he goes to Jerusalem. He wants to get to know. I mean, these are the people he's got to govern. He's the governor. So he goes there and he starts talking to him. And in the process, the subject of Paul comes up. Oh, by the way, you have a prisoner, Paul. You need to send him down here and let's have a trial for him down here in Jerusalem. He says, well, I'll deal with Paul. Thank you. But I'm going to deal with Paul in Caesarea when I get there. Y'all just come on up there. Now, the Jews were trying to get Paul down there. It was the same ambush idea. But Jerusalem is not a safe place. There have been brigands of soldiers, Josephus tells us, who had this sword that, that they could, or knife that they could keep up their sleeve. 
And if they had enemies during the crowded times, even in the temple and in the crowds, they would they had a way of dropping that down when they're all in a crowd together and using that to kill people, to knife them, and then uh, drop the knife. They didn't have fingerprinting then. And in the hustle and the bustle of the crowd, never get caught. This was a serious problem. And this ultimately is one of the innuendos being alleged against Paul as a ringleader of troublemakers. He's probably one of the ones behind all of that, which is why you'll recall I said last week, Paul in his defense says, I've only been here 12 days. Don't blame me for that stuff. They don't have any witnesses. I'm doing that or leading that. That's been going on for quite some time. I'm fresh from the mission field. So Festus goes up there. Festus says, no, 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 no. We're going to do this in Caesarea. So Festus goes to Caesarea. In come the Jews again. They make all the accusations. Paul is there. Paul makes his defense. Festus is thinking, oh, okay. Paul points out they don't have any witnesses. That's true. Maybe we should send Paul to Jerusalem. Maybe there'll be witnesses there. And then I get this whole thing off my hands. So Festus says, hey, Paul, are you into just going to Jerusalem? We'll try you there. I'll come. I'll sit over the trial. Paul says, no way. Because God didn't tell him he was going to Jerusalem. God told him he was going to Rome. So Paul invoked his rights as a Jewish citizen. said, I appeal to Caesar. Thanks to John Grisham for the slide. I had to change his name to Paul Apostle. Grisham writes about a different appeal. So, once, you know, and, and new on the job, Governor Festus checks with his counselors. That's polite for seeing. He called his lawyer. Calls his lawyer and says, Paul's appealed. And the lawyer says, he appealed to Caesar. He gets to go to Caesar. So, he says, okay, to Caesar you've appealed. To Caesar you go. But before the, the, the trip can be put together, some visitors come to town. King Agrippa and Bernice. Also, Berenice, B-E-R-E-N-I-C-E. Same thing. That's the Greek. The Latin version is Veronica. It's a freebie. Okay. Um, of course, it's worth what you paid for it, so I'm not sure you'll ever use it. But it was free, Okay. Agrippa, King Agrippa. Now, who is King Agrippa? Let's look at his curriculum vitae, which is Latin for resume. But, you know, it's Roman times. We've got to use the Latin, right? All right, so I found his CV on the Internet. Let me show you what I found. Personal information. Herod Agrippa. His dad was Herod the king. You've read about him in the Bible. In fact... Luke wrote about him earlier in Acts. Herod the king is the fella who in Acts 12 laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was King Agrippa's daddy. Okay? Let me tell you about his granddaddy. Herod the Great. Want to read about him? Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Herod, when he 
saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. That's his granddaddy. Interesting fella. Not the kind of family reunion you really look forward to. He's got three sisters. The youngest is Drusilla, who was married to that ex-governor Felix that just got canned. Which has got to make uh, the new governor a little bit nervous. Gee, the guy whose job I just took. His wife, his favored wife, is the sister to this guy. Okay, I've got to treat the king well. All right. His older sister is Bernice, or Berenice, or Veronica, for those of us who octate at and lay. His oldest sister is Bernice. She'd been married. Her husband died, I think, and she started living with her brother. There were all sorts of gossips and rumors about this, um, allegations of incest and others. We don't know if they're true. I've given you the sites. These are well-known people of history. Okay, but that's who we've got here. Now, um, Berenice, by the way, or Bernice, ultimately goes with Agrippa to Rome and actually lives, almost marries Titus, who's going to be the Caesar. Almost marries him, lives with him, and Titus was going to marry her. Let me see if I brought that sight. Pretty interesting. Look at this. Whoops. Let's go back here. This is from Dio Cassius, Roman history. Dio Cassius is a fellow who wrote Roman history, and, and uh, he wrote it in uh, about one, he was born about 150 A.D. So he's got all the regal library and everything, and here's what he writes about it. He says, Berenice was at the very height of her power and consequently came to Rome along with her brother, Agrippa, that's our King Agrippa. The latter, King Agrippa, was given the rank of praetor, while she, Bernice, dwelt in the palace cohabiting with Titus, Caesar. She expected to marry him and was already behaving in every respect as if she were his wife. But when he, Caesar Titus, perceived that the Romans were displeased with the situation, he sent her away. We can read in some other writings that he never really got over her. And uh, uh, she was the adoration of his fancy. But that's who Paul's going to appear in front of here in a minute. This is a classic example of God seeing beyond what the world sees. Because these folks come in and they want to visit. They want to hear Paul. Oh, they want to hear him bad. So Paul appears in front of them. Paul is appearing in front of the man who's going to go as a praetor in Rome and his sister who is going to be for all practical purposes for a short while at least the wife of the Roman emperor. Oh, those people who tried to kill Paul in the temple had no clue what doors they were opening for him, did they? Luke doesn't even know this because these events happen after Luke finishes Acts. This is what the eyes of history shows us is God's hand at work. 
So Agrippa and Bernice, they come in with all the pomp and circumstance and all the leading men of Caesarea because everyone wants to be part of it with all the royal show and display as if the President of the United States of America is walking in. And they walk in and the band is playing. Bom, 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 And, and, and everyone gathers in all the prominent Caesareans and in comes Paul. And Agrippa says, you have permission to speak. I love the way Luke does it. I love the way Luke writes it. Luke says, let's go back to it. We're not doing great time-wise, but this is just too good not to do it. Oh, no. Is it there? Ah, there it is. Okay. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. This is on the next day when Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. And Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting, he ought not to live any longer. What do you think we should do? And Agrippa says, you have permission to speak. And Paul assumes the stance of an orator. We have statues of this. This is the way orators would speak. If I were a good Roman, I would have started this way today. But in our day and age, this generally means I'm going to lead singing. And that could cause an exodus, which is in the Old Testament, which would have messed us all up. Paul extends his hand and Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews because you are familiar with the customs, the controversies of the Jews. So I beg you to listen patiently. After all, it was your dad who started arresting first. And when I talk about me persecuting the Jews, that means I was on your dad's side. I mean, the Christians. It was your granddad who started all of this, trying to kill all the babies so Jesus wouldn't be alive in the first place. You've got great familiarity. I beg you to listen with patience. And he proceeds to explain how everything went down, including his trip to Damascus to persecute the Christians when Jesus Christ appeared, resurrected from the dead. And it's that resurrection of the dead that he believed in that caused... Mr. Sit on the side watching over here, Governor Festus, to say, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. I mean, you're brilliant. Don't get me wrong, but you're crazy. All that brilliancy is, since you're crazy. Paul says, oh, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, because I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. It's not been done in a corner. It's been done here. And at that, Paul rivets his eyes on King Agrippa and addresses the king directly. And Paul says to him, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
I know you believe. And Agrippa. Paul, in such a short time, are you going to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response, not just for Agrippa, but at this point he turns it to the entire room with all the leading men of the city. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for the chains. Which had to have a little bit of humor to it. Agrippa goes back with Festus. And they said, you know, he hadn't done anything wrong. Festus says, yeah, I could release him, but he's appealed to Rome, so I don't have the ability to make the sentence now. It goes to Rome. It's been registered. Okay. So next week we'll start the voyage to Rome. Points for home. Now, when some days had passed, man, if Jesus told me I was going to Rome, I'd be looking for the next flight. And if I didn't have one, the next boat. How long does it take to drive to Rome? But it took years with Paul there. Now, the people on their treadmill, they had their own view of history. But look what God did. God's timing, profound. His vision, profound. Paul just goes to the temple to pray and, 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 and make for purity. Or... And from there, he gets to talk to the Sanhedrin. And from the Sanhedrin to the Roman tribune and the centurions and their troops. And then two Roman governors. Then a king and all the prominent men of Caesarea all the way on his way to go see the Caesar in Rome, Nero. God has a different view of the world than man does. And I'm very glad. And I pray for his view in my eyes because I wish I could see it that way. Second point, Paul says, I'm speaking true and rational words. I love that. It's not just true, it's rational. This may seem nonsense to those who don't believe, but it's the most sensible explanation of what's really going on in this world you'll ever find. It's the most sensible explanation to that naggingness in your heart that there's got to be more. It's the most sensible explanation to why things are the way they are. And Rather than be out of our mind as believers, we're actually the ones who are in our right minds. And our minds are being renewed and transformed. Now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but then we'll see rightly when the day of redemption is at hand. Last point. Paul looks at King Agrippa whose dad and granddad will live in infamy for what crimes they've committed against the church, looks the king dead in the eyes and just boldly asks him about his faith. Wow. But I can't pass this without saying it's still a personal decision for every one of us. It's still a personal decision. Where are you on this? Which side are you on? Would you pray with me? Lord, we're on your side. We want your wisdom. We want to see the world the way you see it. 
when there's difficulty, when there's persecution, when there's trouble, when there's happiness and joy and festivities, we want to see the world, the events, the people, the relationships, the way you see them. We want to see you as the the master painter with the canvas. And I confess, left on our own, we get caught up in brushstroke after brushstroke and never see the hand of the master. But it is my prayer that you will show us that vision. It is my prayer that we'll see it not only as true, but rational, logical, accurate. And it is my prayer that we'll all see it very personally, that your spirit will communicate with each one of us that we're not, we're not really just running on a treadmill. We call you Lord because you are Lord. And we seek to serve you through Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen.